Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Fort Hill Community Church. If you guys are just joining us online as well, so glad to have you. If this is your first time here, we're so glad to have you here joining us. Uh, so glad to see some, some new faces. We have been going through Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Aaron has been doing an incredible job taking us through expositionally through Ephesians chapter 5. And, you know, with just a heavy work schedule and family stuff going on, Aaron just wanted to kick back, uh, take a week, and, uh, and he thought he would let me fill in and take the bar that he set so high, bring it down a little bit. <laughs> but no, we... Uh, uh, we've been going through Ephesians chapter 5, and, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of ground so far in a Sermon on the Mount, right? We've talked about the Beatitudes, right? We've talked about what it means to be salt and light in this world around us. We've talked about what it is when Jesus uh, didn't come to, to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law, right? And we talked about anger. And we talked uh, last week, Aaron took on a really tough subject. He talked about lust, right? And just kind of those unfortunate statistics that he brought up of just how readily accessible pornography is how it has just totally infiltrated our culture and uh, you know you don't statistically speaking even if that's not a vice of yours you probably know somebody who does have that vice um, but it doesn't take pornography to actually struggle with the sin of lust right I mean we've all done that at one time or another and the one thing that we can all agree on is that it's bad right? Lust is bad. We can all agree on that. Whether you deal with it or not, it's not a healthy practice, which makes the place that we are about to arrive in the Sermon on the Mount a little different because we're kind of hitting a polarizing topic that Jesus gets into because this is not a subject that everybody in the church agrees on. And so we want to get some clarity in this, the biblical view. This morning, Christ is going to be bringing us into talking about the subject of divorce. And he's going to be talking about specifically divorce and remarriage. Now, there's like four different ways to look at this, right? Like there's like four different ways that the world looks at it, four different ways that it's taught in the church. You've got people over here that are saying, oh, well, you know, under no circumstances at all. Never, ever, ever is a divorce ever permitted for someone. And then you've got someone over here who's saying, well, you know, uh, maybe it's some certain guidelines and restrictions and boundaries of divorce is permittable, but never a remarriage. And then you've got this group of people over here who are like, hey, whatever goes, right? Like whoever, however, whenever, wherever, get a divorce, get a remarriage, it all works. And then you've got this group of people over here who are like, whoa, pump the brakes. We, there's restrictions to both. You can, there's permissions, but there's guidelines. And, and we, what we need to do is kind of figure out, well, which one kind of aligns itself with the Bible? What's like the biblical view? What's God's heart towards divorce? What's God's heart towards remarriage? And I will, I will say that, you know, as we get into this study today, we're going to take a look at marriage. What is marriage? What is God's role for the man? What is God's role for the woman? And there are some things that are going to be rather countercultural to a 2022 culture in this. And, you know, uh, there are some things, if someone maybe who's listening out there may uh, have uh, some, like, easily triggered postmodern sensibilities, there, this, this uh, consider, as the kids like to say, this is your trigger warning. So uh, we're going to be getting into some stuff here that the Bible teaches us about marriage. So really what we, what we want to do is we're going to read through this. We're going to see these two verses that Christ uh, gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And then we're going to pray over it. Uh, we're just going to ask God to soften our hearts, open up our ears and our eyes, that we will submit to the authority of God's word this morning and, uh, and just let him teach us. So let's go ahead and read. This is what Jesus says as we approach uh, this, part, this part. He just got done talking with, about lust. And now he says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we want to submit our hearts to you this morning, to the leading of your word, your authority. Lord, we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us about you, that you would soften our hearts as we approach what can be a very polarizing subject, especially in the world that we live in today. And Lord, we just ask you to uh, teach us this morning more about you and your character and your desires for us, Lord God. We love you and we ask you to work in a mighty way this morning. Lord, I would just uh, ask you to speak through me uh, to just deliver purely your word and nothing else. Lord, love you and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so let's paint a picture here of just kind of the, the social climate that was, that was happening at the time uh, of this teaching. Jesus is facing the sins of the Pharisees. You know, throughout this portion of the sermon, he's exposing their hypocrisy. You see, the Pharisees that believed that you could be righteous by your works, but they couldn't keep God's standard, so they invented their own, and then they called it God's standard. Now, God had and has a very high view of marriage, right? God had a very clear command regarding marriage and divorce, but they couldn't live by that standard. So they invented a new standard. They called it God's standard. And then they said, look, we can do this one. If we, if we rewrite the rules, we win. You know, we, we have this. We, we've got this. They, they basically decided, you know, hey, let's go ahead and let's bring God's law down to our level. And they basically, basically invented their own code of ethics to live by, um, you know, and uh, they misinterpreted the Bible to fit their own view. And they decided that basically you should be able to divorce your wife for any reason at all. That was the pharisaical practice. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say that there were things like, I mean, you burn the toast, you forget to put ice in the Coke, out of here. You know, like they were finding every little trivial reason to shed their wife. And, and they, and they re kind of rewrote God's law around this and said, hey, if you should be able, if you've got the seven-year itch, if you've got the whim, you should be able to divorce your wife. And so uh, the scriptures that they twisted uh, around is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, don't go there yet. We are going to go there in just a little bit, and we're going to read that. But they basically invented their own view to justify their sin, and they misinterpreted a verse to fit that justification. Pull out my phone here because we're going to read something together that I forgot to bring up. Here we go. So what you have here in verse 31, uh, it, what Jesus is coming to, is he's giving you in verse 31 
their view, right? And then in verse 32, you get Jesus's view. You've got in verse 31, it was also said. And then you have in verse 32, but I say to you, and this is something that starts all the way back in, in verse 19. Jesus kind of starts to get very pointed at like, and really goes on like the scathing rebuttal of like this pharisaical perversion of God's law. Now, if you guys scroll up a little bit on your device or, or look up on your, on your, in your Bible, and you take a look at kind of some ground that Aaron covered here, uh, looking back at uh, in Matthew chapter 19, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, this is the part where Christ was talking about being the fulfillment of the law, right? He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And then what you'll notice here is in verse 19, he starts to kind of get a little more directed. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So now he's starting to get to the problem here. He's talking about what the Pharisees have done to God's law. And then he really gets kind of pointed when he gets into verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus kind of gets into this pattern of speech here that we see unfold with everything he brings up where he gets into the next verse and you'll see he starts going you have heard that it was said and then the next verse he'll say but i'm saying and then he gets in talking about lust he says what you've heard said is this but then i say to you this and he starts to kind of get in this mode where he's correcting the poor teaching of what the pharisees have done we get into our portion today about divorce and he says also you've heard this but i am telling you this and you guys are going to see this throughout the month of november as we finish out chapter five he does this in every single section that we get into he says what you've heard is this but i'm going to bring it up a level and tell you that the pharisees are wrong you know, so what he's saying, basically, in other words, is what you've heard is wrong. What I'm telling you is right. He's correcting this, like, traditional, passed-down misinterpretation of Scripture. And to be able to expose these people as sinners before God, he says to them, you know, your interpretations of God's truth are, are wrong right? They're biased. They're opinionated. They're self-justifying. They've twisted and perverted the word of God. And so he wants to set the record straight. And in so, you know, he kind of, in doing this, he forces them to recognize their sinfulness. They can't get by anymore just rewriting the rules and saying, hey, look, now we can attain this. We can bring God down to our level. And now we can attain that level of the law. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're not good now for doing that. So in verse 31, Jesus is addressing a problem with the Pharisees. Uh, the, the Pharisees have been saying that basically you can divorce your wife for any reason. Uh, and, and then Jesus says, no, you will tolerate, they tolerate divorce for any reason. I'm telling you, no, I don't tolerate divorce. Now we're going to pause the story right there. And we're going we're gonna to pause that. We're going to hold it right there. Because really what we need to do is we need to take a broader look at what Scripture talks about with divorce. Because it's really not enough for us to look just at these two verses. Because for us to truly understand 
uh, what's happening here, what Jesus is saying, we need to take in the whole picture that Scripture gives us, right? We need to take kind of a holistic view to figure out what truly is God's heart towards divorce and remarriage. And I don't really think we can truly understand God's heart towards marital separation until we understand what's God's heart towards marriage in the first place. What is it? Why is it created? What, wh why did Jesus make it, or God make it, and why is it so incredibly important? One thing that we can say is marriage is not something that is a man-made tradition. Now, you would think so, right, with the amount of money that people pour into a wedding these days, right? Some people will, will spend the first 10 years uh, of their marriage basically making a mortgage payment on what they spend on their wedding. But, but really, this is not a man-made tradition. It was something that was created by God even before the fall of man. So let's turn our Bibles. Let's look over to Genesis chapter 2. Let's kind of see where this all began. Genesis chapter 2. Uh, this is where God had made Adam and Eve, first Adam and then Eve. And he bonds them together in a union. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall, that's a very important term, by the way, hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So here we can start defining what a marriage is already, just, just in what God says here, according to God's intention. Let's look uh, at this and kind of understand a little further. Marriage is first laid out at the very beginning, right here, as a monogamous relationship, right? You've got one man, you've got one woman, and also there's no end to it. There's no expiration date to the marriage. They always stay one flesh. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that term, hold fast, is super important here, as this definition really tells of the permanence uh, of the marriage relationship. The idea behind this language is really speaking of what we might think of as superglue. It's, it, it, it's talking about the idea of this language is, it, the idea of it is two things that are glued together in a permanent bond, stuck together, not stuck together like, oh man, I'm just like stuck with this. But I mean two things that God has brought together. God has glued them together. God has stuck these, these two things together. They are uh, two that have become one, two bodies, two minds, two sets of emotions glued together, brought together by God, not just physically, right? Not, they're not just uh, sexually bonded, but they're spiritually bonded. Now, God did create sex to be expression, uh, to be an expression of that oneness, uh, but it's more than that. What we're talking about is a oneness in spirit. God has brought them together to be a oneness in spirit. It's a permanent 
union, which is why Jesus says later in Matthew 19.6, and we're going to read that whole portion in a little bit, but Jesus says when he's confronted by the Pharisees even later on about it, he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate, right? Fun fact, by the way, this is just nerding out on the Bible. Uh, fun fact, the term for separate, separate is the really the Greek word for divorce, uh, which is the word chorizo, which if you are familiar with any modern-day restaurant menus, you know that that's also our today's word for Mexican sausage. So so it doesn't really mean anything, but hey, if your spouse ever says, I want a divorce, take them out for a loving date over Mexican food. You know, do that. That will cure everything. <laughs> But the marriage bond is important. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's important that we can see all throughout Scripture the links that God took to protect it, right? As a matter of fact, in Leviticus, we find out that the penalty for a married person uh, having adultery with another married person was death. That, that was how serious God took it. Now, as a matter of fact, if, if you just had two young unmarried people who has some sort of physical relations, some sort of fornication, if they were not married, the penalty was just scourging. But if you were a married person who, who you know, had adultery with another married person, death. It was, that's how serious God took it. Uh, the thing that we need to remember is that God hated anything that defiled marriage, and that God that we read about is still the same God that we serve today, guys. God hasn't changed, right? God's heart towards divorce, God's heart towards marriage is still the same that it used to be with just how much it means to him. It meant so much to God that he made room in the Ten Commandments for it, right? He made room. He said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus brings this up uh, in the message that we just heard from Aaron last week when he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guys, this is, uh, this is serious. Uh, not only is it forbidden to do adultery, it's forbidden to even think about it. Because God has such a high view uh, that marriage is monogamous. It's lifelong. It's permanent. It's a relationship between one and another person. You want to know how concerned God was about this? He wanted to remove any any and every temptation so that people wouldn't even be tempted to have these thoughts towards another person uh, that they weren't married to. And God went to great lengths to protect it. And the thing is, I wish we had time. Honestly, this is one of those messages today that kind of has to be a nutshell message, and it could be a 10-week study that we do on marriage and divorce and remarriage. Uh, this is going to be what we call in the computer world the zip file. It, it's going to be, we're going to take all of this, we're going to kind of compress it into something that we can digest quickly, uh, but there's just so many things. One of the cool examples, just a quick example of how God takes modesty and temptation so seriously, Exodus chapter 20, verse 26. This is just a cool thing. Now, if you're reading this, depending how you're, the reason why you're studying uh, this particular verse, you might overlook this little detail, but I think it's actually quite profound how it actually shows God's heart towards that kind of thing. Because he says, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. At the time, there were these pagan altars that were built, and they had these steps that would go up, 
right? And people could stand at the bottom of the steps and look up at somebody who was going up to worship whatever pagan deity they were going to worship, and it exposed things. Being on the bottom of the steps, looking up the steps, would, people would see things that they shouldn't see based on the garments that they were wearing, and they would go up to the steps. And God says, no, not my altar. That's not, when you come to worship me, there is going to be absolutely no room for lustful thoughts, no room to cause someone to stray. So he said, my altar is going to be flat because we're not going to climb steps to get in there. Can you imagine if we had those kinds of standards today? I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but I've actually gone to churches before where I have been, a, I've been there during worship. And I was at one place once where, where there was a young lady who was leading worship on stage, and she just was not dressed appropriately, even for just, you know, going to Walmart. And, it was, and I found myself like, I guess I'm going to worship God like this today, you know. And I just, you know, I, did. I looked over, there's another guy doing the same thing. And, we, we, you know, it's amazing to me. That's basically what God is saying, you know. We're not, you're not, there needs to be a, a practice of modesty among his people because that's how seriously he takes this, how seriously he takes the purity of marriage, the purity of our thoughts, Right? That's how, how serious God takes adultery. And honestly, like I said, there are so many places in the, in the Old Testament uh, that we see God's heart in the same way, where we see just in how high he regards the sanctity of marriage. Um, and if we had several weeks to go over it, all, we would, but it's a nutshell, it's a nutshell sermon this week. Um, but it, it is important for us, again, to kind of understand first how God defines marriage and how important it is for him so that we can also digest now what his feelings are about the separation within marriage. But why is it important? We know that it is, right? We just, we just talked about it. It's extremely important that marriage is important to him, but it also defiling marriage is very important. It is a huge violation. Why? Why is marriage so important to God? Why does he go to such great, great lengths to protect its purity? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is, is giving us God's view of marriage. And he says this. In verse 22 of chapter 5, he says some familiar language that we've read in other parts before. But he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself to say, uh, uh, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, uh, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul continues on, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one... Uh, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, 
just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. This is where we start quoting from Genesis again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, there's that term again, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And here's the, here's the big line that Paul gives us. He says, this mystery is profound. And he says, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And of course, in in verse 33, he ends it by saying, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife uh, see that she respects her husband. So Paul starts out, you know, he's talking about, uh, you know, all the typical stuff, wives submit to your husbands, all this, a lot of the language we've read before. But then he says this line in verse 32. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what Paul is saying is that marriage becomes a symbol defining for us in visible terms the relationship between Christ and his church. That's why it's so important, guys. That's why it needs to remain undefiled. And the reason marriage should be that way uh, and the reason it should sustain its purity in that way is because it is a symbol of Christ and his church. So let me ask, is the relationship between Jesus and his church permanent? Yeah, it's permanent, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't ever end. There's no expiration date uh, to the, the uh, relationship that Jesus has with his church. And so it is intended with our marriages. That's the primary reason God made marriage. Marriage was not created. Here's a fortune cookie. <laughs> marriage was not created for, primarily for human happiness. It's not. That's not why God created marriage. It's not intended for, primarily for human happiness, right? You're never going to find, if you're looking for joy, if you're looking for happiness, it is not going to be marriage that does it. It's going to be a right standing with God, right? Our relationship with God being right is going to flow into our marriages, and then our marriages can produce that, but that's not why God created marriage. He created it to be a visual aid, a symbol to us of the relationship that Christ has with his church. It's, that's why uh, marriage, it, it's not meant to just be thrown away due to our own personal preferences, you know, if you do that, you rob marriage of its divine purpose and priority in the first place. But what happened to marriage? Why is this thing that God created that's so beautiful and so intentional, um, wh what happened to it? Why has it been defiled? And what happened to marriage? Well, sin entered the world, right, and changed everything. Turn back to Genesis Chapter 3, verse 16. At this point, Adam and Eve have uh, just sinned, and God is doing a rundown of the curses that have now entered into the world. And in Genesis chapter 3, 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. But here it is. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule 
over you. Now, a lot of people read over that, and not, a really, not really a lot of people probably think too much about it. They may say this probably just means that, you know, she'll desire her husband the way that we think of the word desire. But that's not actually what the Hebrew word means here, because you have to remember, this is still a curse, right? This is a curse, and this is where things are starting to change. And in that one statement, you have the basic problem in marriage. You have two cursed sinners now trying to get along in the same household, right? You've got two people who are now living with a curse, and the harmony has been taken away. God's design originally was an unbreakable union. That's the way it was from the beginning. God's design was two people together as one through all of life. But when sin entered and affected you know, the human race, it resulted in a conflict in marriage. The marriage ideal that God set up um, before was now shattered. Chaos enters the home, and divorce is inevitably going to become the result. Now, prior to the fall, marriage was awesome, right? Prior to the fall, marriage was beautiful. The man was the head. The woman was the helper. The man's headship, though, was a loving, caring provision of understanding. Uh, the woman being a helper was a loving, caring, submissive person to the one who was given to be her leader. It was beautiful. There was harmony. Uh, her heart was totally devoted to him. His heart was totally devoted to her. And you know, according to Genesis 1, and 28, they actually both co-ruled. They ruled together on a co-level. But with sin entering the world, that ended. That changed. In verse, uh, in verse 16, uh, it's, we see the curse come in. Her desire is for her husband, and he shall rule over her. Now, Look at, look at uh, this, this word here uh, for rule is very different. It's a word called mashal. That is the Hebrew word. And it means uh, to rule or to reign, but not in the same way that in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, what we saw there. Not in the way where they rule together now. It's a totally different rule in reign. Uh, when talking about this, uh, he's, he's saying this is an elevated position or an elevated office, and literally what's happening is now that the fall has happened, man was elevated to rule in the home. You know, before it was kind of a, a soft leadership, you could say. It was kind of a, a soft leadership that, uh, that, that was done with lots of love and caring, but now he is set in a place of ruling and authority, and it's a new dimension of rule, and the woman would now be made to be subordinate to the man. And honestly, with, without a doubt, if you remove the moral compass of the Holy Spirit, and you remove Christ as the center point in a home, then this very much can lead to a very abusive situation. If you, if you, if you take this, this is where male chauvinism comes from, right? Because when you take Christ out of the equation, when you take the Holy Spirit leading in a home, this kind of power can lead to a lot of abuse. The male chauvinism starts to rise up and becomes very oppressive. But then also now you have the other side of this too, the other side of that line. Then you also have the word 
desire, right? She will desire for her husband. And this is the Hebrew word teshuka. And it is used only one other time in the Pentateuch, in Moses' writings, right, in chapter 4, when it's talking about Cain. And it says that sin desires you, same word, sin desires you, but you must rule over it. Sin desired Cain, but he had to rule over it. And the point of the word is this, that sin desired to dominate Cain, and he had to suppress it. And that is exactly what this curse is now. The curse is that the woman would desire to overtake the role of man and take his authoritative position. And man would have to suppress it. And now from there, from Genesis chapter 3, 16 on, you've had the battle of the sexes ever since. You want to know where modern day feminism comes from? It comes from Genesis chapter 3, 16. You want to know where male chauvinism comes from? It comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. This is where everything started to change. And unfortunately, marriages have been dealing with this power struggle ever since, right? And especially in our day and age, right? where we got such a power struggle. So, now, now that we have this very brief understanding of the gravity of the marriage bond and what marriage was made for and how sin affected it, let's go back to Matthew and understand a little further about the, what the Pharisees believed in Jesus' correction of them. Now, we were looking at Matthew 5, but Jesus actually had another confrontation that we're going to go ahead and look at later on in Matthew about the same subject, only this writing is a little bit more wider and sheds a little bit more light on what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So head on over to Matthew chapter 19. This sheds a little bit more light um, on just the picture that we painted back in chapter 5. You guys will have to forgive me. I'm wearing contacts today, but my eyes are really bad. So that's why you guys will see. At one point, this will be covering my head while I try to read them. My notes here. I got old eyes. All right. We are in Matthew 19, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And here we go. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, and notice his answer, what he goes right to. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Here we go, Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no, let not man separate. So you notice the first thing Jesus says is he doesn't even talk about what they're talking about. Like they're bringing up their perversion of Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, you want an answer to whether divorce is okay? I'm going to give you what God's intention is. I'm going to give you the initial thing before it even the fall happened. This is what marriage is meant to be. But then they said to him, they said, well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So there we go. Right there, we already have 
a misconstrued uh, scripture, and as we'll see in just a couple of minutes here, they're already misquoting it because Moses never actually commanded that. Nowhere in Deuteronomy chapter 24 does it say that Moses made this a command. And so Jesus addresses that. They say, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus corrects them. He says, he said to them, uh, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So it was a permission, it wasn't a command. It was basically giving them over to their sin, but Moses never commanded that. Jesus says, look, from the beginning, this is the intention of marriage, and this is, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, allowed you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. And he goes, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So let's finally, let's go back now and take a look. Let's see where these Pharisees are getting this from. Let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's just four verses. Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4. These four verses are literally the only source that these Pharisees are going to on this subject. This is what they're clinging to. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1, says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house, a lot to follow here, right? Or if the latter man dies, uh, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you uh, for an inheritance. Now, that's the text that the Pharisees are getting all this from, and the problem is, what does it mean? What, is it, what does it actually mean? It's important to understand it. You know, it's been misconstrued by so many people, and because of that, a lot of people have been confused as a result of it. But we do need to remember that now as we interpret this, the one truth that we know is God hates divorce, right? God loves marriage. So we need to keep that in the forefront. As we read this, we need to make sure that that is the filter in which we are perceiving this portion of Scripture. God hates marriage, or God doesn't hate marriage. God hates divorce, and you can uh, keep that in the forefront of your mind as we take a look at it. Because we're not going to find a verse in the Bible where God says, hey, if you're sick of your wife, just, you know, hand her some divorce papers. You know, that's, that's not going to happen. Uh, that would be inconsistent with everything we've read so far. It wouldn't match up with all of these places that emphasize the importance and the permanence of marriage. So you need to look at Deuteronomy from a different angle, right? If God hates divorce, what is Moses doing here with this certificate of divorce? Why did Jesus mention it in Matthew 19? Something we need to understand is that God didn't create this certificate. 
He didn't. It wasn't designed by him. Uh, we don't find anywhere in the Bible uh, where God invented this. God didn't prescribe it. God, God didn't command it. Jesus only recognized that it existed. That's it. And just to point that out again, Matthew 19, 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, it wasn't, it was, it's not a command, right? It was simply a permission based on their sinfulness. Nowhere does God command somebody to get a divorce. And Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God prohibited divorce. He hated it. However, God knew that in a cursed world where sin existed uh, and relationships were strained because of that curse itself, that divorce was going to be a reality. And so God simply permitted that when divorce happened, uh, there could be certain things followed to ensure what would come about as a result. God was trying to regulate the consequence of divorce. Nowhere will you ever find on any page of the Bible God condoning or commanding divorce. You know, it, it's not his wish for divorce to happen. It's just that God knows it exists, and Jesus recognizes that it exists, it was basically intended to give a writing of divorcement to regulate the inevitable results because uh, there had to be some legal process, right? Marriage was a legal document. And, and he had to create something as a fail-safe and a guard for the victims of divorce because in this culture, right, if you were divorced, if you were a woman who was just shed by your husband, then the absolute reputation that you would get could pretty much put you to death, even if it wasn't your fault. If the husband decided, hey, I don't like how you made my bacon, and I want to go ahead and divorce you for that reason, um, and it's not her fault, she just, now she's left with nothing that says she's okay. She gets labeled a harlot. She gets a reputation of, well, maybe she ran off on her husband. Maybe she's involved with somebody else. And so this divorcement was actually, this, these papers, this certificate, was actually just kind of a, a fail-safe for her uh, that was created because sin happens and you need to regulate the consequence. Really, it's kind of an act of mercy, you know, to create this. Its purpose was to be a testimonial to the woman of her freedom from the marital obligation to the husband who divorced her. And the bill of divorcement was a statement that the woman was set free by the man so that she wouldn't be accused of being a harlot, she wouldn't be accused of having forsaken her home or run off with someone else. Uh, this was a safeguard for her. And secondly, the writing of divorcement was evidence for a new husband um, of her legal freedom to be able to remarry again. Side note, by the way, remarriage is always assumed in Scripture. When it's always talking about divorce, you will always find remarriage assumed with divorce. Every single Scripture that, that talks about divorce always brings remarriage. It always uh, assumes it. Uh, and so the Bill of Divorcement gave a legal freedom to do so. Uh, but really, it was intended for her, her reputation as a fail-safe uh, to protect her. And that's what Jesus is quoting from now. And he's saying, look, you totally misinterpreted what Moses was telling you. 
Well, basically, if you get to the heart of what Moses was saying in the original language, and I know we're running out of time, but what Moses was basically saying is, look, you know, you have, we're putting this paper out because what you have done is you have set this person up to commit adultery. Everybody's, if you follow that line, follow the language of that portion of scripture that we just read in Deuteronomy, and it's adultery, 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 you know? And so Jesus is saying, look, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason, right? And the thing is, there, like I said, there are so many things that we can get into, and I know we're running out of time. There are so many things that we could get into about, you know, God's heart towards uh, marriage, God's heart towards divorce, uh, really just what are the very limited biblical grounds uh, for a divorce to be, even be permitted, uh, and the same with remarriage. Um, but really, at the heart of it, even though adultery is always mentioned, it's never a necessity. That's the thing. It's never a necessity. Nowhere are we commanded, hey, if adultery happens in the marriage, you must divorce this person. What you always see is restoration. If you want, go home. This is your homework. Go home and read the story of Hosea. Read the story of Hosea and, and read about Gomer and read about, just talk about long-suffering and, and, and all the right in the world according to the civil law. That's really the difference. Every time you see Jesus say, it was said, he's talking about the pharisaical civil laws that were created. But the, what he's talking about, when Jesus raises the bar, he's talking about God's ideal. It's the difference between civil law that's down here and God's ideal that is up here. And the ideal is always marital restoration. The ideal is always. When, 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 when Hosea experienced adultery with his marriage, did he leave her? No. When God experienced, experienced adultery with a nation... Did he leave them? No. When God experiences adultery within his own church, does he leave us? No. Jesus is with us at all times. And that's always where we lean as Christians. We always lean towards restoration. Now, of course, there's going to be instances, and there's always going to be things that, that come up because we live in a sinful world and we live with sin ourselves. And that's, unfortunately... Probably a part two somewhere else when we talk about what those actual biblical grounds and permissions are. Uh, but, you know, the thing I would take away from this, guys, is what a beautiful depiction we have in and in a, really a call as we as married people, uh, those of us who are in a marriage, what a call for us to remember we are representing the relationship that we have as a bride to Christ. What a call that is in our marriages, to not just approach them with a lackluster, mundane approach, but for husbands to really think of their wives the way that Christ has laid his life down for the church, right? For a wife to do the same, to lay her life down for the sake of her husband, the way that God calls us to. So much stuff I want to talk about and so much stuff I don't have time for this week. Uh, but let's go ahead and let's bow our hearts and, uh, and let's pray. And uh, I know that was a lot of a lot of words. <laughs> Let's go ahead. And thank the Lord for his word today. Lord God, thank you so much um, for the relationship that we do have. Lord, thank you so much for your calling into your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us to you. Thank you, Jesus, for your long-suffering, your grace, 
your mercy. Lord, when we, as a bride, sometimes very much uh, are adulterous, Lord, you don't abandon us, you don't leave us, you are with us, Lord God. And would you, Lord, as a church, as we repent, Lord, would you just grab a hold of our hearts, draw us close to you, Lord God. Would you forgive us of our sins, forgive us of our adulterous tendencies, the things, Lord, that even in our individual lives, Lord God, that we put ahead of you sometimes. Lord, thank you so much for giving us marriage to remind us, Lord, of a relationship that doesn't exist on a human level, but a relationship that exists in the divine realm. Lord, we love you and thank you for all that you have done. And we lift this up in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.